Good morning. It's good to see each of you here. I know we're going through challenging days. It seems like everyone and his dog has COVID now. Um, but I'm so glad you're, you're well and able to be with us today. And we weather these things as we weather everything in Christ. And we're fine. We're continuing in our message, uh, our series of messages from the Gospel of John that I've titled The Message became flesh. And uh, we're entering into, uh, I've, I've, I'm dividing it into a number of sermons because I think there's a lot to get out of this chapter 11 of John, but we're, we're digging into kind of a dark place. And uh, preparing uh, to preach this week, I'm reminded of probably the most surreal day of my life. The Sunday evening, September 20th, 2009, it was that Sunday evening. I was at home. I received a phone call from Reuben and Jackie. They said my father had died and my mother was on her way to the hospital. My mother had accidentally left the car running in the garage that Sunday after church. She had gone to deliver some clean laundry to a man whose clothes she had washed. And when she came back, she forgot to turn off the car in the garage. So just like that, they were both gone. My father and mother passed away from poison, carbon monoxide poisoning. I remember driving out to the hospital and stopping along the side of the road and turning to look at Beth and Caleb in the back seat and telling them, these are the moments for which we have faith. If our faith offers no answer to death, then we're wasting our time. I've shed many tears because of my parents' deaths. I still miss them today. But I can tell you that because of Jesus, I also rejoice. I have found that Jesus proved to be all he had promised to be in the darkest moments of life. And I'll tell you also that that was not the last dark moment in my life. I've found that Jesus inhabits them all. So today we begin a journey into the valley of death, but Jesus is our guide. So we're going to be today in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. I've titled today's message, Light in the Darkest Place. Let's start reading. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, from the village of Mary and of Martha, her sister. Now Mary was the one who had anointed the Lord with ointment and had wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent to tell him, Lord, look, he whom you love is sick. And having heard, Jesus said, this sickness is not for death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. We saw last week, how we had arrived November, December, uh, Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, and uh, Jesus has this uh, moment there with the uh, religious authorities in Jerusalem, and uh, there's this conflict between him and them, and in this conversation, he says that I and the Father are one, and they want to pick up stones and stone him, accusing him of blasphemy for making himself God, and he argues... Uh, I have every right to claim to be son of God. And if you doubt 
my right to do so, then check out my actions. Anybody can say they're the Son of God, but can they do what I've done? And do not my actions correspond with the very loving nature of God as he has revealed himself to you, Israel? They still want to kill him, so he leaves there, we're told, and goes to the region in which John the Baptist originally was baptizing. Now, in, earlier in the gospel, at the beginning, when he talks about John the Baptist baptizing, he says that John the Baptist was baptizing in Bethany. So when we read here that there's a certain sick person, Lazarus, from Bethany, we might think that that's right where Jesus is right now. But it turns out that John seems to be describing two different locations that had the name Bethany. Because as we see in verse 18 of chapter 11, he's going to indicate that this Bethany that Lazarus and Mary and Martha live in is just two miles off east of Jerusalem. So it's kind of on the outskirts of Jerusalem, uh, whereas Jesus is on the other side of the Jordan and probably way up north, very close to Galilee. Uh, so... Uh, a bit of disambiguation there. You might wonder why it takes Jesus some time to get there. In fact, if, if the location is uh, what some people suggest, then it could very easily take him four days uh, walking 20 to 30 miles a day to get from that place back to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, so anyway, all we're told about this man is that he's sick. We're not told the nature of his illness, what exactly uh, he's come down with. And we're told that he's from this village of Bethany and that Mary and Martha are his sisters. Now, here's a parenthetical statement that's a little bit odd. This is Mary, the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. That's the one whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, what's strange about that is that thus far in the Gospel of John, he has not mentioned this. He talks about it like he's already told us. But he's not going to mention this until chapter 12. So uh, I think, and many scholars say this, I think they're right. John, I think, is assuming that his readers are familiar with the gospel story and familiar with the characters because this of anointing the feet is present in the other gospels. And as Jesus said, she's going to be known the world over for her act of extravagant devotion. And this is an act of extravagant devotion. She takes a year's worth uh, uh, a year's wages worth of really expensive perfume. Consider that. Take your salary for a year, spend it on a bottle of perfume, and then break it and pour it over Jesus. What an extravagant act of devotion. And I think John wants to tell us a little bit about what kind of thing would elicit such an extravagant expression of devotion. But this is that Mary, the one who will uh, be so in love with Jesus that she says, what is the most valuable thing I can bring to him to let him know my love? The sisters, Mary and Martha, send to Jesus. And they say, Lord, look, behold, pay attention. The he whom you love is sick. He whom you love is sick. Now, there's no request. There are no instructions. But I think it's fairly obvious what their expectation is. You love him. He's sick. Uh, you're going to come immediately, if for nothing more than, than to 
be with him in his illness, but we all know, everybody is aware, that Jesus has already healed countless people. He has healed a lot of people, and even though John doesn't get into these things, uh, we are told in the other Gospels that there are days when Jesus is at a place and he heals every single sick person that is brought to him. So it's clear that Jesus could intervene here. He's already demonstrated that he has the power to heal sick people. Clearly that's the expectation. Come, you love Lazarus. They know Jesus loves Lazarus. Come, he's sick, he really needs you. And here's what Jesus declares. As we move into this, there's a whole lot to unpack in this chapter. But let's remember how Jesus frames the whole thing. This sickness is not for death. We might, as we continue reading the story, say, Jesus, you were wrong. Lazarus does die. Well, I think what Jesus is saying is that death is not going to be the ultimate thing served by this sickness. We might tend to think of death as uh, the confirmation. Every death as a confirmation, yet one more evidence that entropy wins. That it's inevitable that the end result of all life is death and that death wins in the end. And Jesus is saying, no! Death does not put the end to everything. What is at the end of all this? What is at the end even of sickness and death? Jesus says that the end goal of these things is not the celebration of entropy, but it is the glory of God. That the Son of God may be glorified through it. And he has just, in the verses we just read before, claimed the right to call himself Son of God. So this is for the glory of God who has come to us in the flesh. Jesus is going to be glorified in this sickness and this death. It's not going to bring glory to death, but to God. This is the seventh sign in the Gospel of John. John in his Gospel only sees fit to mention seven miracles of Jesus. He could have mentioned a whole lot more. But John, and he calls them signs because he's aware that the healings of Jesus are much more than just him saying, ta-da, look, see what I can do, but that they are instructional, that they are meant to teach us. They are didactic. The first of the signs, the wedding at Cana in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And here Jesus communicates how he, as Messiah, has come to bring to fruition the hopes of the ages. And he is turning dry ritual water for purification into wine for celebration. His second sign is the healing of the royal official's son, demonstrating that he has authority uh, to speak life over the sick. He heals the paralytic in Bethzatha, by the pool of Bethzatha, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. And there demonstrates that he can heal even people who have no faith. People who even after being healed, go and find his enemies and rat him out to the enemies. So great is his grace and love. 
He tells us of the feeding of the 5,000, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, and announces himself as the true bread from heaven. He who eats of me will never hunger, ever. Following that, he walks on water to the disciples, chapter 6, verses 15 through 25, and demonstrates that he has authority over creation itself. He then heals the man born blind in chapter 9 verses 1 through 41 and demonstrates very powerfully that he is the light of the world. And now we have the seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus Lazarus in chapter 11. Jesus says this, right? Before we even get into the story. Lazarus, is, his illness is not going to serve death. It's going to serve to bring him glory. I'd like to ask you to consider that. In what ways have you seen Jesus display his glory in the darkest areas of your life? Have we come to think of these dark areas as venues for glory. Let's keep reading verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So as he heard that he is sick, he remained in the place in which he was two more days. Then after this, he says to the disciples, let us go into Judea again. The disciples say to him, Rabbi, just now the Jews were seeking to stone you and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If one walks in the day, he does not stumble because he is seeing the light of the cosmos. But if one should walk in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. It might seem odd that uh, John tells us Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, just a little note about the Greek. When they send word to him, he whom you love is sick, uh, they use phileo, this kind of uh, brotherly or or filial love, the the kind of love that uh, demonstrates uh, attachment to someone. But uh, the word he uses here when he says Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus is agape. Kind of the highest form of love. The highest possible word you could use to describe. The word that best describes God's love. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I think John tells us that first because what he tells us in the next verse seems like just the opposite. But notice how he connects the thoughts. He loved them so... As he heard that he is sick, he remained in the place where he was two more days. So the reason Jesus stayed two more days is that he loved them. That's an odd thing. You would expect, if he loved him, that he would drop everything and run to his side immediately. But no, because he loves him, he stays where he is two more days. That's two more days Lazarus is languishing and the life is dimming and he is losing his battle against this illness. Two days he's left on his own to die. 
Then after this, he says to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. And I suspect that he's waited the two days necessary for Lazarus to pass away. If he was uh, further north, I've said it would take about four days to travel to Jerusalem if you went 20 to 30 miles a day. Um, So uh, it very well may be that he waits there until he knows Lazarus has died before he even sets out. Now the disciples are more concerned with what's just happened that led them to leave Judea. They were picking up stones, Jesus. They were about to throw them at you and kill you. You want to go back there again? And that does show us that Jesus loves Lazarus. He is putting himself in danger by going to see him. And yet, Jesus, on the other hand, doesn't seem terribly concerned. Aren't there 12 hours in the day? The day has its allotted number of hours, and darkness cannot press in and cut short the day. And he seems to be making a, just kind of an, a very obvious observation. If, if you're walking around in the light of day, you can see clearly where you're going. You're not going to stumble. If you walk at night, you're going to stumble because you can't see the light of day except that that's not what Jesus says. He says, if you're walking around at night, you're going to stumble because the light is not in you. So clearly he's, he's talking about more than just how well you can navigate the terrain. And he has called himself the light of the cosmos. In John 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the cosmos. The one who follows me will never, ever walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is about to show his disciples just how literally he is the light of life. So in this metaphor here, he's saying that if you're in me, or if, if I am in you, if you have me in your life, darkness is not a concern to you. You don't have to worry about darkness. Yes, we are walking into the lion's den. We are walking into an area where the most powerful men in Jewish life have already sworn they want to kill me. But if you're with me, we're all fine. If I'm in you, don't worry about it. It's that thought that the psalmist expressed. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. You've got nothing to worry about. You have the light of the cosmos in you. I think about this, about how Jesus' love is the reason he lets them endure six days of agony. Two days watching him die. Four more days waiting for Jesus to show up. Four more days where he's in the cold grave. You've lived through that kind of thing. You know that those four days were no fun at all. You know that the two days leading up to it were no fun at all. It was probably the most excruciating experience of their lives. And yet we're told that things happened this way because Jesus loved them. He could have dropped everything and rushed 
and gotten there in time and healed him so that he wouldn't die. What would that have done in the lives of Mary and Martha and Lazarus? Well, it would have reaffirmed to them that the Jesus who has healed so many people before, uh, he can heal them too. They knew Jesus was healer. They didn't know he was the one who raises the dead to life. And Jesus picks a very select few people to show that to directly. In fact, in all the gospel accounts, in all the New Testament, we are only told of three people that Jesus raised from the dead. He raised the widow of Nain's son in Luke 7. He raised Jairus' daughter. We're told about that in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew 9, Mark 5, Luke 8. And he will raise Lazarus in this passage we're looking at right now. Jesus chose them for this because he loved them. And they are going to experience firsthand in a way none of us has. Jesus' power, his command over life and death. Perhaps most powerfully of all, Lazarus himself who after four days in the grave will hear Jesus call him out and he will have no recourse but to rise and walk out of the grave. We can talk about it. We can speculate about what that must be like. Lazarus knew what it was to be called back to life. And the gift Jesus wants to give him is a precious gift he would never have dared ask for. I wonder how many times we look at the dark moments in our life with that perspective, that they are the direct result of Christ's love for us. And I am convinced that God intends to invade the darkest spaces of our lives with his glory. And the fact that he allows them to happen is not a proof that he doesn't love us. It's just the opposite. You see, God wants us to know him. Not superficially. He doesn't want us to have a casual acquaintance with him. He wants us to know him as he knows us. Paul describes that as his goal as a Christian, to know him as I have been known by him. And the greatest gift we can have in our whole lives is to know Jesus deeply, profoundly. And God uses the dark moments to teach us things nobody else knows about him. You can see it. There's a weathered faith that looks different than the faith of somebody who just came to Christ. Yes, it's all enthusiasm and excitement. But when you've lost a parent, you've lost a child, you've lost a spouse, you have an appreciation for who Christ is that somebody who hasn't been through that has no idea. 
And it is a gift of grace that God invades these spaces with his glory. And we learn things about him that we could never learn any other way. Jesus let Lazarus die. He could have rushed there and stopped it, but he deliberately stayed two more days before spending four days getting there. I want to ask you, have you ever interpreted God's actions toward you as cruel or unloving? Let's keep reading verse 11. These things he said, and after this he says to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him. So the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. However, Jesus had spoken about his death, but those thought that he was speaking about the rest of sleep. So then Jesus said to them in plain speech, Lazarus has died, and I rejoice for you that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Again, Jesus is doing things here in this passage we don't really expect him to do. Is he toying with his disciples when he says Lazarus has fallen asleep and they assume, oh, he's resting, he's going to get better? Ah, no, I'm kidding, he's dead. Uh, That's not what Jesus is up to. He's not being cruel. I'm reminded that Christians have spoken of death in these terms. Paul, when he writes to the Thessalonian believers in chapter 4, verse 13, talks about those who have fallen asleep and that we who have lost loved ones should not grieve as those who have no hope. I think uh, our use of that terminology traces back to Jesus himself with Lazarus. Jesus describes the death of his own as sleep, not death. Because for those who belong to Christ, death is not death. It is merely a pause. It is merely a pause awaiting awakening. And we're not being metaphorical. We are being literal when we speak of sleep because I will awaken again. I am not dead and gone. That's why Christians grieve differently. We grieve. Nothing removes the sting of separation. But our grief is wrapped around the cold, hardened steel of certainty. The certainty that is rooted in the promises of God Almighty. They misunderstand. He's going to get well. Jesus says, no, he has died. And then this might seem cruel. I rejoice for you that I wasn't there. I'm happy on your behalf that he's dead. Why? So that you may believe. You see, Jesus knows what lies ahead. He knows that one day... Peter's going to be crucified upside down for his faith. 
He knows that one day uh, Herod is going to have uh, James beheaded, killed with the sword. He knows that all but one of his apostles are going to suffer martyrdom. And he knows that before they're going to be able to do that, they have to know in their bones that when he says, you will live again, he literally means you will live again. And death has no, uh, the specter of death has no power over them. Jesus knows what lies ahead. And he wants them to know in their bones that they have nothing to fear. I rejoice for you that I was not there so that you may believe. Let's go to him. Jesus rejoiced at this, that his disciples are going to experience the full loss of the death of Lazarus because he's going to show them literally I am the light of life. Think of your own walk. And how have you experienced rejoicing in hardships because of what Jesus is doing in your life in the midst of them? I can tell you from personal experience that going through suffering brings you out different on the other side. And in Christ, that different is better. There's one more verse I wanted us to look at. Verse 16. So Thomas, the one called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. Thomas is a name that does not appear in literature until John's Gospel. We have no example of Second Temple literature before John wrote his gospel of the use of this name. Uh, the word tom in Hebrew or tomam in Aramaic means twin. So uh, John just translates it into Greek, didymus, which is the Greek word for twin. Of course, we don't speak Greek, so I translated it into English for you, the twin. Uh, but he was known as the twin, so I guess there was another guy that looked a lot like him going around there. Um, and he says to the disciples this very cryptic thing, let us go also that we may die with him. I wish John had seen fit to explain to me what Thomas meant. Have you ever wondered, you read this, it's like, what? And, and as I look at it, I, I can kind of think of at least two ways to understand this. Maybe he's being sarcastic. He's like, ah, maybe he's the big fatalist. And Okay, Jesus is set on going back. They want to kill him. Jesus doesn't care. He's going to go anyway. Let's go, and he's going to get us all killed. But what we know of Thomas in the Gospels, that doesn't ring true of the type of person he was. First of all, he didn't seem to be the comedian. He didn't seem to be the one to make some sarcastic little snip. Um, in fact, he seemed a very genuine disciple of Christ. And it's interesting, in John's Gospel, John makes Thomas kind of the guy that he wants his readers to identify with because we're going to arrive at the climax of the gospel 
when Thomas encounters the risen Christ. And the whole gospel has been pointing out how this walk of faith is such a difficult journey, fraught with challenges and uh, difficulties and hardships and and we are struggling to make sense of what Christ is trying to tell us and faith is a difficult journey in John's gospel and Thomas embodies that for us so well I think he was all in and I think he understood that following Christ might be extremely costly. And I think he had decided, I am ready. I am go- I'm, I'm putting all my chips in. Which is why when Jesus dies on the cross, Thomas is utterly devastated. And he loses all faith. And it's like, there's no way. And even when all the disciples are telling him, we've seen him risen. He says, I don't care. I'm not going to take your word for it i got to put my finger in the wound before I'll believe. Fool me once, shame on you. And yet, he does encounter Christ. And he says, here I am. Here's the wounds. Believe. And Thomas will give expression to where John is trying to bring us all in this gospel. He will come before Christ and say, My Lord and my God. So I think Thomas was not being sarcastic. I think he was being genuine. I think he's misunderstood Jesus. And that Jesus is talking of death and dying and maybe he's saying, well, if Lazarus has to die to participate in the kingdom and they've been told in Second Temple Judaism that the righteous will have to be willing to lay down their lives and they will be risen by the Messiah. So Thomas is saying, okay, if that's what it takes to follow you, Jesus, I'm ready, let's go. If we have to die, let's die. If that's what it takes to enter into the kingdom, I'm ready. Of course, he's misunderstanding. That's not going to happen for a long time yet. In fact, Jesus is going to turn everything upside down in this event and is going to give a foretaste of what Resurrection Day is actually going to be like. Thomas didn't understand. But he was still ready to die with Jesus. Is that where you are? in your walk of faith? Would you say, maybe like Thomas, I don't quite get it all. I'm not sure I understand exactly what it is Jesus is saying, but I'm going to put my life on the line for this. Jesus came to us because he loves us. He didn't come to correct us. He didn't come to point out how bad we are. He didn't come to make us feel awful. He came because he loves us. And he came to invade every arena of existence with his glory. Not just the the shiny and pretty things. The rainbows and the unicorns. No, he came to invade the dark dungeons of this world. The grave itself. He came to invade the arenas that we think of as under the power of wicked forces. 
because of this, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, even death can become an area for rejoicing. That doesn't mean suffering and loss are erased. There are moments in this life that still hurt like hell. But Jesus uses even the most horrendous areas of our lives as avenues for his glory. He's going to use them to grow our faith, to teach us more about who he is, to show us how he emerges victorious over everything, and to help us understand in our bones that we share in that victory. That's our comfort. That is our joy. When he is in us, when we walk in the light of the cosmos, that is when we do not stumble. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you allowed him to invade the darkest nooks and crannies of your life? I hope so. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us and that you are so glorious and that you're not just going to do some kind of a band-aid over the problem, but that you're going to get into the darkest and dirtiest corners of things invaded by sin and death in this creation and in our lives and in our hearts. Lord, we pray for the courage to reach out to you in faith, to open up every dark area of our hearts and lives to you and allow you to bring your glory to bear in our darkness. Lord, be in us and be in us the light of the cosmos, the light of life. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.